it's rare that you get like the bullet note list from somebody's desk being like, here's all the shady shit we're going to do. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the podcast where we defy the conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead dig into the lesser-known legacies of some of history's most notable people. Yes, we do. I am so excited about this episode. Why, why are you excited about this episode in particular? For a number of reasons, but um, I'm really pumped to be able to do this episode at the recommendation of someone who left us a review on iTunes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Give the people what they want. This is a this is a Meet Your Heroes fan fan favorite or... Request? Fan request. There we go. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be a fan favorite. Why not? (laughs) You know, it's really sort of a coin flip over here some days. But yeah, this person left such a lovely review. And so, you know, we want to do this episode, say, hey, thanks. We saw your review and um, we hope you enjoy. I'm also pretty nervous about this episode. Oh, why, why are you nervous about this episode? Because... Unlike the 38 or so other episodes where I did not at all care about those heroes, I actually, prior to the end of this episode, probably, (laughs) (laughs) uh, liked our hero this week. Yeah. And like in the sense that you knew them through their work, this, yeah, as a person you felt some uh, affection for. Yeah. So, I mean, I studied poetry in college. I co-edit a poetry journal, and um, I am a cliche in that I really <laughs> like our hero this week, Neruda. I really like his poems. Yeah. Well, well most so, of them. Most of his poems. So, yes, the our hero this week uh, has been called the greatest poet of the 20th century in any language, mm. Mr. Pablo Neruda. Yeah. So... Uh, this is a real, a real personal one for me. Well, buckle up. And it's exactly why I couldn't actually do the research. I said to you, hey, this was requested. I think it's a good idea. You just can't bring yourself to it. I can't bring myself to do it. Well, I am here to serve. (laughs) If nothing else. Sure. Uh, so we're going to start in 1904 uh, on July 12th. Ooh. Ricardo Neftali Reyes Basualto. Mm. is born in Chile. His mom dies shortly after he's born. Ah. His dad uh, remarries, has a few step-siblings and half-siblings and kids from mistresses that they kind of like have hanging around. Wow. Uh, yeah. All contributes to uh, Ricardo being a pretty angsty teen, as you might imagine. <laughs> yeah. So by the time he's 13, he produces his first published poem, Wow. Enthusiasm and Perseverance. In his local newspaper. Quite the topics. Yes, yes it is. And his dad is less than pleased to have a poet in the family. I mean, (laughs) to be fair, all dads are less than pleased to have a poet in the family. Yes. So so this is where he decides to adopt a pen name, Mm -hmm. uh, settles on one of his heroes, Jan Neruda, who's a Czech poet. Okay. And uh, Pablo, presumably because... It's a plausible name for somebody living in Chile. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And from this point forward, he will be known as Pablo Neruda. As a teenager moving into his 20s, um, he's writing, getting published kind of a small scale. 
And then at age 20, 1924, he publishes 20 Love Poems and a Song of Despair. Mm. And this is hugely controversial. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's super erotic. Yes. I mean, very much so. Sure. And it's erotic by today's standards. Uh, in the 20s, it was also <laughs> considered erotic, <laughs> uh, especially because he was like 20, which people right. were like, you're, are you young? You seem young. <laughs> I don't know. Like dirty old men, maybe people expected it of. But okay. um, apparently his age was part of the shock factor, too. And he's unmarried. He's unmarried, sure. right? The scandal. Yeah, right. But there's also this like culture of machismo. And uh, basically, people get over it. It sells millions of copies right mm-hmm. it's it's his best known work even though it it didn't get reprinted right away like it ended up becoming far and away the thing he sold the most copies of yeah now you can buy it in like little pocket copies they're like the size of like a deck of cards it's yes. sold as like a i don't want to say tchotchke but like a commemorative <laughs> yeah it's like a keepsake in and of itself a keepsake right? yeah that's the word this one work basically cements his international reputation as a poet and so by age 20, he has kind of made it, I guess. Like, he's he's definitely recognized. Sure. One big problem, though. Mm-hmm. International recognition does not pay the bills. You know, it actually still doesn't do that for poets. <laughs> it still doesn't. And so you can be recognized as a really good poet and uh, still not have a lot of money. It's kind of like being Twitter famous now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you like, can... oh, you have 500,000 followers and you're hungry? That sucks. Yeah, it's like the it's like a Instagram influencers with half a billion followers who are just like begging for free meals because yeah. they can't pay for their meals. Yeah. So this is the situation he finds himself in, right? And so for the next couple of years, he is like scraping by desperate for cash. Mm. Despite his recognized genius, uh, eventually he uh, decides, or, or I guess like, figures out a way to get himself a job as an honorary consulate. Mm. Okay, so have you ever heard of this term honorary consulate before? No, I was honestly just about to ask, like, what are the job requirements of a consulate? Yes, okay, so you have embassies, right? Yes. And then you have consulates, which are, like, in smaller cities, not quite as, like, you know, staffed up, not quite the same privileges as an embassy. Okay. But an honorary consul is somebody who actually doesn't have official job responsibilities. Most places, they're just purely volunteers. Like a docent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, yes. For, for those listeners who don't understand, docents are the volunteers in museums. Mm-hmm. It's they kinda... represent the institution. Yes. Um, but if you are an honorary consul, you get something that the museum volunteers don't get, mm-hmm. which is a diplomatic passport. Oh. You get, like, invited to a lot of, like, fancy diplomatic parties. Okay. Basically, like, this struggling poet, he's like, I am going to go get a job. And he ends up in, like, the connected, wealthy, schmoozy, like, I'm going to live this life on the international stage at, like, I don't have a ton of work to do. Mainly mm-hmm. just going to sit around and read poems and write poems. So, first of all, rude. <laughs> but... Have you ever tried to sit around and write poems? It's not such a cush gig. I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I think my guess would be that there are, are likely harder jobs in the world. You know what? I'm not here to offend other poets. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm here I'm for not. it. I'll offend Mm-mm. the poets. Um, no, we will not be alienating <laughs> our poet, our new found poet constituency. constituency. We have already alienated our reptilian <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> we have alienated a number of people politically. Yes. Oh, a number. But no. The poet's off limits. Okay, fair, fair. Him, 
On limits. On limits. Okay. So you, today, honorary consuls still exist. The reason I say oh. this is because you can go, if you go to uh, diplomaticconsulting.com, there are matchmaking services that will try to get you a small uh, developing country to give you one of these posts. What? Usually it costs like five hundred to $600,000 in quote unquote donations oh. nowadays. Uh. Uh, but then you like get this diplomatic passport. The, literally the banner on this website says immunity, tax savings, political access, privileges, like, it is, it is an advertisement. We are small countries that will take your bribes to put you outside the bounds of the law. <laughs> and uh, this is what he does. This is his job. Wow. So, like, he's not, like, a struggling, like, patent office clerk like Einstein, right? He's not doing manual labor. He, like, wades his way into, like, sitting on the beaches in Sri Lanka. This is where he gets his appointment. Okay. So he literally goes to, um, he goes to Rangoon in Burma, uh, now, now Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Singapore. Like, he is basically getting paid a little bit to travel to all these elegant places, live in incredible privilege, and like be exempt from local laws, literally. I could imagine being exempt from local laws would lead a young 20-something to become a ne'er-do-well uh, yeah. of oh, sorts. Oh, yeah. So he he is uh, not going to not gonna do well with this. So at the age of 25, finding himself in uh, Sri Lanka with nothing to do but sit around and read and write poems all day, very lonely and isolated, mm-hmm. he uh, develops this affection for his housekeeper, oh. the woman who is assigned to come and clean his room every day. Okay. And he starts to make advances towards her, and they are not reciprocated. She is lower caste. She's been described as black, but also a dark-skinned Indian woman, but definitely of the lower caste, meaning right, untouchable in her society, so lacks a lot of the privileges. He is literally immune from the law, white man, from South America. Because she never returns his favor, his affection, I'm going to read this passage from his autobiography. So these are words he wrote about himself and what he did. Should we have a content warning of any sort? Yes, this includes sexual violence. Okay. One morning, he says, I decided to go for all, and I grabbed her forcefully by the wrist and looked her in the face. There was no language I could speak to her. She allowed herself to be led by me unsmiling and soon was naked upon my bed. Her extremely slender waist, full hips, and overflowing cups of her breast made her exactly like the thousands-year-old sculptures in the south of India. The encounter was like that of a man and a statue. Oh, no. She kept her eyes upon throughout unmoved. She was right to have contempt for me. The experience was not repeated. Right. That sounds like... Rape. Yes, he is admitting to raping this woman in his autobiography, Uh, right? So let's just start here. Not only is there this power dynamic of like, oh, I am the diplomatic staff and above the law and you are this lower uh, caste woman who works for us, but also like as he's making advances on her, like he's admitting, oh, she's frozen. Like she is she is powerless. She is terrified. And and it doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop him. And also, he then writes about this in his autobiography. So I want you to put yourself in the, in the mindset of why, why would he do this, right? Except for the fact that, like, he understands that he has such power in this situation. There's nothing anyone is going to do to him, right? Like, he, he has no fear. I guess the, it is just galling to me to not just, like, exert this violence at somebody, but then, like, to just unabashedly claim it. And then, like... Almost try to romanticize it for profit. I mean, yeah, it's um, when you said imagine, 
yourself or imagine for yourself like, nope, I can't. Uh, that is unimaginable to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, so not off to a great start. Yes. So nothing happens to him. He will never face any consequences legally, financially. I mean, until he wrote about it in his autobiography, I'm sure no one even knew. No. And reputationally, even after he writes about it during his lifetime, like now there have been uh, modern protests to like pre- bestowing additional honors on him now that this is like in the public. Right. Yeah. But at the time, like absolutely zero repercussions. Um, so while he is in this diplomatic post, um, he meets a Danish bank employee uh, named Maruka Haganar Vogelzang. Okay. <laughs> and Maruka here, as a bank employee, from uh, she is kind of upper class like him, taken with his diplomatic presence, right? Not as not a ton of money, but like has a lot of like very fancy friends and sure. parties. Uh, and so they get married. Wow. Um, How old is he now? Like mid twenties? He's twenty six at the time. Okay. So this is his first wife. He returns to Chile and still famous from his poetry, but now he is like got this brand new avenue to political power. So he gets additional posts Mm -hmm. in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and then Barcelona. Got Uh, it. So so he finds himself in Spain uh, a few years into their marriage, right? So he's like 30 now. Without her. No, he he brings her with him. So they're married. And while they are in Madrid uh, at the age of 30... They have their first child. Okay. Malva Marina Reyes. If you remember Reyes, this is birth last name. Yes. Right. Uh, she goes, they call her Trinidad. So he, their daughter is born with hydrocephalus, mm. which is accumulating uh, the cere- cerebrospinal fluid on the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is very proud and like showing her off, but it becomes clear pretty quickly that um, like this medical condition is serious. Yes. Right. Um, she couldn't, she couldn't speak or walk by the time she was two, right? So, so she was humming, but she couldn't communicate in the way most kids can at that age. Right. Uh, and so he goes from like being proud and like showing her off to like being pretty annoyed at having to still be a father. Uh, so he starts referring to her as, uh, this kid, his daughter as a perfectly ridiculous being. Oh, and no. a three kilogram vampire. Ah. Yeah. Uh, actually, the full quote was uh, My daughter, or what I call by that name, oh. is a three kilo vampire, a leech, a freak, a monster, a perfectly ridiculous being, is the full quote. <gasps> Who is he saying this to? Uh, oh, in letters to his friends. This is like written accounts. No. Yes. He's I mean, just if like, he said it out loud, it would still be just as awful, but like. Yeah, but he's like on the record, still in his writing. He's like, fuck that kid, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, uh, no. So I'm sure his marriage is doing very well at this time, too. Yeah, well, so he, he's describing his experience with his wife, and he's like, oh, yeah, we spent weeks trying to feed her and put her to bed. We had to buy these, like, ghastly orthopedic shoes. Uh, yep, that's you know, what you and do. And medical contraptions, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And his, <laughs> the quote that just caps it off for me, to, like, get, put you in his mindset. He's like, you can imagine how much I have suffered. <gasps> Yes, sir. This right? is about like, your suffering. you. I mean, to be fair, like all of his poems are about how much he has suffered. Yes, right? But th- that, this is the thing that was like really revealing and disappointing about him. It's like you <sighs> read these poems about how much he's suffered and like these like small, like these p- pains. And right, how he turns this like one human connection experience into like this like story of yeah. like universal suffering. And then you realize like he's willing to do that exact same thing with 
the fucking pain his daughter is in because like she's having a hard time eating. He's like, God, can you imagine how hard this is for me right now? Yeah. Like, fuck you. Right. I, I bet it's made harder for her by having such a terrible father. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is made much harder for her. Uh, but luckily not for long, because at the oh. age of two, he leaves her forever. <gasps> he just abandons this kid. He abandons the wife. He's like, you know what? This really isn't for me. Peace the fuck out. And he Where leaves. does he, he just leaves them where in Spain, where they're at? Yeah, they're in Spain. He's like, I'm going to go somewhere else. Oh, no. Yeah. And so he, he literally just like goes on other diplomatic posts and leaves them there. And his wife, who was like, working for a bank before but is now a mother with a child who has disabilities is like Mm -hmm. what am I gonna do so she struggles for a while there she moves back closer to home she moves to the Netherlands tries to work whatever job she can and then she just like starts pleading with him for child support of course Um, right she's just like like anything you can send she wrote him for years she called him my dear pig uh, when she would beg him for food rations for her daughter um, I don't know if that was like supposed to be endearing or an insult at that point, but if she's it's begging. Endearing, I feel much worse, <laughs> and it's not even a good enough insult to have oomph, though. But that this is like legitimately making me feel like sorrow. Yeah, that it's... she was like begging for food rations for her and her child with exceptionalities or disability. Yeah. I mean, eventually, because he sends nothing and he doesn't like even respond most yeah. of the time, she is forced to put this child into a foster home mm. um, and she gets to visit once a month. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. For like the next six years. Um, six years? Yes. For six years. So the child, the, he abandons them when, when the child is two. Malva is two. And then uh, until Malva is eight, they are just like struggling. Malva's in a foster home. Maruka's just, like, trying to, like, find jobs and scrape together money. And and this happens until 1943 uh, when Malva dies. Neruda gets a telegram, uh, and he does not respond. What? Uh, I I mean, honestly, at that point, what's he going to say? Like, there's nothing he could say. Oh, no, absolutely not. Oh, but it gets worse. Uh... So right as Malva died a month earlier Mm -hmm. the nazis just invaded the netherlands Mm -hmm. and so when he gets this telegram saying that malva was dead and then doesn't respond then maruka follows up and sends him a letter is like hey also just p.s the nazis have invaded you are a diplomat you have the authority and the paperwork to get me out could you please Get me out of the Netherlands. Right. I am stuck here with the Nazis. Are they still married, like, legally at this point? Legally, yeah, legally they are still married. Yeah. Like, I am your wife. She, apparently in her letter, she also held out hope that maybe now that the child was dead that they could maybe get back together because that was, like, his big hang-up. Oh, And she's like, but at the very least, could you just get me out of Nazi-Ak? Occupied territory, and he refuses. No, he leaves her there in the Netherlands with the Nazis. In fact, she is going to be rounded up and sent to concentration camps. Except at the last minute, because we're talking about the what's the end of World War Two. Sure, um, she actually is spared right before. Oh my god! Because the Allies come in right before she w- she was actually getting on the train is oh when my gosh. the Allies save her. 
Uh, oh my goodness. And liberate the city. But if it were not for that perfect timing, Neruda would have literally sent the grieving mother of his child with disabilities to a Nazi death camp rather than do the paperwork to help her out. I am feeling so sad. Yeah, it's I mean, it's this fucking could have rough. been this, it's it's rough for someone that whose work I had respected. This would have been rough if this was like, you know, Walt Disney. This is just a <laughs> yes. heartbreaking story. Oh my goodness. It's fucking terrible. Wow. Wow. I feel like sick to my stomach. This is awful. Doesn't get better. What? Yeah. Um, There's no redemption. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So, so uh, he's going to continue writing during this time. He publishes other things. We're going to focus mostly so he does continue to write, but also he is becoming a pretty powerful politician at this point. So, like, that's something that's, like, not generally part of his legacy, but he's he's as much a political figure in Chile at the time as he is a cultural figure. Yeah, I mean, actually, if you if you do any digging or have any interest in Neruda, his, yes, he is a very divisive political figure in Chile. So we're going to switch to talk about some of his political work and political stances. During this time, uh, being an ambassador or... Uh, not technically an ambassador, but working in the diplomatic service, right, for Spain. He had been the Spanish Civil War. He had become very pro-communist based on the the communist uh, fight in Spain mm-hmm. at the time. And so as he returns to Chile for the second time, you know, after his diplomatic stint. And he's like 45 at this point. Yeah, he is. He's in his early 40s, I think, the very first time, like 41 when he becomes a senator for the first time. He becomes okay. a senator. He, he is the Commu- he's a Chilean Communist Party senator. Got it. So he is running as part of the Communist Party mm-hmm. for the Chilean Senate. Got it. Uh, and he wins. And he is an ardent communist now. The thing that was shocking to his other, fr- his literary friends and many people, as he becomes a communist, part of that is like he starts to like, he he's supporting communists around the world. And based on his experiences, he becomes a major supporter of Stalin. Yeah, I was going to say, so the other communists around 1945 are really <laughs> kind of... Um, kind of shitty people. Dicey, so, yeah. yeah just dicey affiliation. Yeah, just, just a, a, a historical aside for those listeners who are less familiar with right this period in communist history. Um, so Stalin did fight the Nazis alongside the Allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then afterwards, Stalin became really a totalitarian dictator and is responsible for what scholars would agree is roughly 20 million people dying. I was going to say 10, but yeah, 20 feels about right. So 20 is a ballpark, right? Definitely more people died under Stalin than died in the Holocaust, which killed, what, 5, 6 million people, I believe? Oh, Um, I mean, I honestly don't want to, like, speak to the specific numbers because... um, I don't want to get them wrong either. I don't want to get them wrong, and... um, We don't want to make it a competition. Yeah. Right, but just, let's be clear, like, there are two or... there are two, at least two major genocidal atrocities in the 20th century. and Oh, they're in the 1940s. Sorry, in the 1940s. Is that what you yes. meant? In 1945. Yes. Between yes. like 1940 and 45, there are at least two genocides. Yes, and Stalin is responsible for them as well. Yeah. right? And so um, many of them through just uh, at least a million direct executions that there are direct evidence and records for, <sighs> but also two million people dying in prison camps, the gulags, at least another mm-hmm. million people in forced marches like relocating, mm-hmm. five to six million people die of starvation yeah. in the same time period. And like, whether, do you want to count those people in because of his policies? Anyway. You do. You do. Um, so, <laughs> so Neruda 
is like this man is amazing this no, whole time. What he is just a huge. So so t- to be fair, like the full scope of his human rights abuses and were um, not quite known. And and Neruda backs off a little bit towards the end of his life as these start to become more public. Got it. But he also like never comes out and says he doesn't support Stalin because he doesn't want to like give ammo to the enemies even towards the end of his life. But all this time, like as these atrocities are starting to become known, Neruda is still very vocally and publicly backing Stalin. In fact, so some of his friends in Chile and some, especially in the literary community, were saying he became more and more Stalinist uh, while I became less and less enchanted with Stalin. And then eventually they, despite being recognized as like the greatest poet of his generation, some of his peers said that, quote, Neruda and other famous Stalinist writers and poets, I felt the goosebumps that I get from reading certain passages of, of the Inferno. No doubt they, they started in good faith, but in uh, intensely by commitment, in, by commitment, they saw themselves becoming entangled in this mesh of lies and this mesh of falsehoods deceits and perjuries until they lost their souls end quote right wow like i mean i feel like if you're willing to sort of if you're if you're apathetic about your daughter dying and your wife being almost executed like it seems like a stretch that he would extend empathy to people suffering in europe yes oh absolutely and and he right his mantle is like to be a man for the people right but even even among the communists, right? So there is there is this uh, Stalin was competing for power with Trotsky around the time of the Russian Revolution, right? And so Trotsky was like, there should be no bureaucracy; it should be like the proletariat, right? Like constant revolution, like mm-hmm. power to the people. And Stalin was like the bureaucracy, right? And like mm. Stalin essentially eventually exiled Trotsky to like Siberia and then like to Mexico. And so even among like ardent communists, there's fights about like. Well, Stalin was clearly not the right choice. Like maybe Trotsky would have been the power to the people guy. Mm-hmm. But while he's a diplomat in Mexico, there's an attempt on Trotsky's life once. Eventually, they're going to succeed and kill Trotsky in Mexico. Uh, but spoiler: the first time, <laughs> the first time when it fails, Neruda helps the assassins escape. What? So, yeah, he he uses his diplomatic post to like help them get away with it. He's like that Stalinist that he's like helping. He's helping execute who you know Trotsky who people. Other people would consider, like, one of the real heroes of at least the communist ideals. Sure. If not yeah. the actual, like, implementation in the USSR. And, it, and yeah, and it was like, fuck him, let him die. Get, get like, oh, save these guys. God. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, so his his literary pals are not loving that turn for sure. him. I just got to interrupt and say, this is not a funny episode at all. I'm having a very hard time making jokes. I have no jokes from this. Yeah, this, sorry. This is just like... Usually the formula here is like one of us tells stories, the other one makes jokes, right? And like yeah. it's like a nice balance. You you provide a very few jokes here for this episode. That's true. Yeah. I mean, when your first glimpse into this adult, this adult's life requires a content warning and then, quote, it gets worse, unquote, <laughs> there's not a lot of room to make jokes. You should have had some filler content. So, yeah, I should, I should have gone easier. I should have gone easier. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, he's he is aiding and abetting assassins. Yeah, assassins for Stalin. They're, the the politics of Chile eventually uh, turn. He's ardently arguing against the existing radical parties. 1948, when he's 44, he has to go into hiding. Basically, he's removed from office while he's hiding. He's for done like all this year. shit by the time he's 44. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Communist Party gets banned from Chile. Uh, he escapes to Argentina and then travels around to Mexico and India and China for a while. Okay. Um, he's he's writing still, but but uh, he's 
trying to fight back for this ideal of a, you know, socialist Chile that's democratic as well. Eventually, if you fast forward, he gets to return to Chile. And then by the time he is uh, about retirement age, 1970 or so now, mm-hmm. he's 66. He is nominated as a candidate for the Chilean presidency. Holy. Wow. Okay. Yes. Has he remarried? He has. I know he so has I left like, a, I left a lover. Yeah. So he has. So he has. Uh, he's married and then he has a lover and then he goes back to his wife and then he marries the lover. I left a lot of this out because yeah. a lot of it is like he never has any other kids. Right. Right. He's a flander. He's a, he's kind of a dirtbag in like the fact that he's cheating on everybody. But um, like Matilde. M-A-T-I-L-D-E. Yes. Generally his muse and, and considered the, the, like, the love muse. of his life. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I'm skipping over all of the parts that do justice to, like, whatever contributions they think he made to poetry. Okay. Mostly because I'm focused on all the other interesting things to me. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I was just asking, trying to situate myself. Yes, yes, yes. It's just, a, you know, one hit after another in what feels like a very short amount of time. But now we're in the, you know, he's 60. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to skip forward, like, essentially 15, 20 years. Yeah. Uh, He's about to become president. Yeah. Well, he turns it down. Oh, okay. To support uh, Salvador Allende. Okay. uh, Who's actually going to win. And this is an important, like, political milestone because this is Chile's first democratically elected socialist president. Okay. Right? So they have... So the Bernie Sanders of his day. Yeah. They are are democracy. Uh Uh-huh. Right? And they have decided to implement socialism. So socialism got more votes. So let's be clear. Uh, despite all of his like support for Stalin and everything, when this happens, when his political party right comes to power and he like mm-hmm. accedes to Allende to have him be the president instead of Neruda, this is a democratic people's movement for socialism. Okay, you could imagine a lot of social democracies in the Netherlands right today, or Sweden, mm-hmm. or Denmark, right, where like something similar happened. Uh, but we are going to take a quick diversion. He he does win the Nobel Prize around this time. Right after this election, like he's ascended to political power. He's finally nominated for the Nobel Prize. One of his translators, like, basically gets this for him, just lobbies for years and years and years. Sure. I think the thing that I've learned and we we've always talked about doing an episode on Nobel is Mm -hmm. that. um, Oh, yeah. It is a much more political process than sort of this just like this person made big contributions. There's nominations. There's campaigning. They're like. All of these things that um, I didn't know at all, but we have so many heroes that we featured who are Nobel Prize winners. And it's not just like, oh, there's this committee that sees you doing good in the world. It's like, oh, there's this committee and this nomination process. And it's not it's not like arbitrary or it's not not spontaneous, I guess is what I would say. No. Yeah. It's it's not like some spontaneous meritocracy where like the most incredible achiever like yeah. automatically gets this prize. Mm-mm. It Like for years and years and years had been this campaign to get him a Nobel Prize. Mm. And in literature. Yes. And yeah. the reason he hadn't gotten it was because of how pro Stalin he was this <laughs> sure. whole time. Like sure. literally that was the thing where he could not get the votes to get a Nobel. They had to get Churchill in there first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And so then later through these relentless years of campaigning he does win this Nobel Prize so okay. he's 67 now the very next year after Day. so think about things are going well his political party finally ascended to power he isn't president but he you know a seat he passed passed it up to he could have been president mm-hmm. he wins the Nobel Prize this is the year when Richard Nixon says enough of this bullshit okay uh, because it just vaguely just like 
looks around oh, the no. world and is like, no, but this bullshit gestures uh, about, wildly. No, gestures specifically at Neruda's Chile uh, and this election. Got it. So we're going to close out with a quick aside because uh, for the very last year of, well, last two years of Neruda's life, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Nixon plays a huge part. Gross. When Nixon sees this election, he immediately is afraid that Chile is going to become another Cuba, essentially, right? Which mm. is, you know, the socialist, communist, you know, country on the U.S.'s back door, but he imagines this is spreading, right? Okay. So they cut off all foreign aid immediately. And because they were afraid that, okay, so now Allende is going to like align with the Soviet Union and Cuba, the U.S. has to put a stop to this. So in 1970, even before Allende took office, right? So Nixon gave the order to overthrow Allende. What? Yeah, so th- we have the de- declassified documents from the NSA. Uh, and, and so there's this handwritten note. So it's so like when you think about the U.S. and like conspiracy theories, right? Like are mm-hmm. we like, you know, did has the U.S. government like done shady things or everything? It's rare that you get like the bullet note list from somebody's desk. And like <laughs> here's all the shady shit we're going to do. But like there's literally a handwritten note from the CIA director, Richard Helms. who It says, this is all quotes. One in ten chance, perhaps, but save Chile, exclamation point. Worth spending. Not concerned. No involvement of embassy, though. Ten million dollars available, more if necessary. Full-time job. Best men we have. Game plan? Make the economy scream. 48 hours for plan of action. Like, just like bullet points. Like, yeah, we're just going to fuck them up. Um, oh, God. Again, this is them taking action against a democracy because they're afraid that, like, politically that is going to align in a way that's going to somehow, like, give an ally to Cuba. I don't know. Right? But, like, this, they begin to start this illegal coup. Kissinger is the one who is the mastermind of this, right? So he's, like, saying, like, Kissinger says, like, there's two different things we have to do in parallel here, right? Track The first track one, quote-unquote, was, like, this State Department initiative, which would basically subvert the elected officials, right? And track two is a separate CIA operation to actually do covert CIA operations to overthrow the government, mm. destroy this democracy, and replace it with whatever they needed to. And so it took a year or two, or I guess it took three years, because in 1970, he was sworn in. 1973, the coup happens, right? And so wow. this is when Augusto, the general the general from on this track two plan, right, mm-hmm. the general Augusto Pinochet comes to power, backed by the CIA, and destroys this democracy. Uh. Uh, at, at the same time, Neruda was, had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer, right? But he okay. is a major figure in the opposing existing military, or sorry, he's the existing political party that's in power. Yes. And so just a little while after this coup happens, uh, Neruda dies. And mm. the story is that it's his prostate cancer killed him. Got it. But it turns out that's not actually what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. Yeah, be- so even though it was originally reported, the day he died, he was alone in the hospital, right? He'd already spent five days there. His health wasn't great, but he called his wife, Mathilde, right, who we just who we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. He told her to come because they were giving him something and he wasn't feeling good. Oh. Right? Sure. He was concerned about what the doctor was giving him. He told his wife at the time he believed that Pinochet had ordered the doctor to give him something to kill him. Oh, okay. So he was slated to leave for Mexico. The next day, his wife comes, he dies six hours later. Oh, no. Right? Wow. For many years, the government denied it. But... I mean, what are they going to say? Like, yeah? Yeah, the Chilean government denied it, right? Since then, there have actually been a lot of further investigations in present-day Chile. Mm. Um, and 
they have now based on they exhumed his body twice. Yeah, I didn't know he'd been exhumed. Yeah. I thought just once, but yeah. And the reason was, right, like trying to find out, did he actually die of natural causes? And the 2015 report said that he was either given an injection of something or it was given to him orally, which causes death. Uh, and it was almost certainly due to the intervention of the government. So all that to say, even though he was murdered for supporting a democratic socialist government by the CIA's backed candidate, mm-hmm. for all of his other flaws, sure, I would still definitely say neighborhood is not my hero. Well, he's not mine anymore. Yeah, sorry about that. I, hey, listen, that's what this podcast is about. We No one is safe. And if you make it to a certain echelon of celebrity, chances are you've done some shit. And so, you know, we can't just pick people that we know we're going to hate. But you know what? Don't make me do Houdini. Oh, I no. will come after Houdini Don't. so hard. Don't you dare. <laughs> Don't you dare. Oh, yeah. I mean, not my hero anymore. This is... Um... But to be fair, there are probably... Uh, many, many, many better Chilean female poets that I should know about or uh, women and non-binary poets from Chile that I should know about that yeah. I don't because Neruda has been taking up the space in my brain. One one of the things that many of the Spanish-speaking literature scholars uh, that I could find would talk about is the fact that Neruda, by their estimation, is still vastly overrated in popular culture compared yeah. to his actual contributions. And there's so many other people who have made so many more contributions, especially to the Spanish uh, written literature of the 20th century, but they just there's no space because sure. of his celebrity. And so maybe, hopefully, yeah. we can just learn to like have a little exploration in the, in the dialogue and like discover some voices that maybe aren't getting heard. That is the good that will come from this episode. Fingers crossed. Yeah, and if other folks, and I'm just going to do a shameless plug because there's no such thing as a conflict of interest when you have a podcast. Uh, if <laughs> yeah, people yes, there is. are interested what? in reading some fantastic poems written by women and non-binary poets, they can go to qapoetry.com or find the poetry journal that I co-edit uh, at QA Poetry on Instagram and Twitter. There you go. Just... It's such gorgeous poetry. See, poet listeners, aren't you glad you stuck around to the end? Yeah. I'm really proud of it. I have like two pet projects, that and this, and then like actual pets. And I'm proud of 66% of what I just mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Alternate days, the podcast and the pets go back and forth, which one I feel good about. But Sure. Well, if people would like to listen to episodes of which I'm sure we will be proud of at least 66% of, Mm -hmm. where should they go? Well, they're listening to it now. Congratulations. You did it. Um, but you can also find our social media at Your Heroes Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And um, you can leave us a review and tell us who you think we should feature. We'll send you stickers. I mailed out like six, seven envelopes of stickers this week. Whoa, very well. Super fun. Nice. So get some swag. And uh, until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.